0: In the beautiful West Seventh neighborhood of Saint Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. So, the risk of preaching through a whole book of the Bible is that sometimes you have to preach through a text that you don't really want to preach through, and that's hard to do. Uh, so, I'm actually going to open in prayer and ask you to pray with me uh, for help for this passage. Uh, Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the book of Hebrews, just such a, a marvelous and deep work of theological truth. Uh, I pray now as I preach uh, maybe what's the most difficult text um, in in much of the New Testament, that you would give me grace and help, uh, and that you would coat uh, the words coming out of my mouth, that they would be true. And I lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I say this, I pray that, knowing full well that I, I want to do justice to the biblical text today, but there's a chance, I, I normally don't worry about what I'm saying, but there's a chance that this is one of the few things maybe I'll be wrong on. When I get to the end of my life and stand before God, He might say, you know. You got that one wrong. Uh, And that's okay. So I just want to say that. But I want to do full justice to the biblical text and not try to squeeze God into a box that answers my questions, right? This is a big problem with modern Western Christianity is that we ask questions first, and then we go to the Scripture and we say, all right, Scripture, do your job and answer my questions, right? So it's our questions that set the pace, and then we squeeze God into answers for those questions. I'm going to try not to do that, which can offend some. I'm going to try to give... Scripture space. I'm going to try to give it space to let it breathe in this message. So let me first tell you guys this story. So it was Christmas of 2011. I was living in Spain as a missionary and church planter, and Aubrey and I were about to get married in about five or six months. Um, One of our kids is sick, by the way, so my family's not here today. I just had my first initial conversation with people in Bible translation, so it was exciting. I'd just done about three years in Spain, but I was about to be moving into the Bible translation world. Uh, I had a conference to go back to and attend in Italy. All of the European pastors were all going to get together in Italy, and my, my time in Spain was drawing to a close, but I still had some work to take care of. So it was Christmas. Christmas. And I went to sleep because that next day I had a really early morning flight. You know those terrible morning flights where when you, when you buy the ticket, you're like, oh, 7 a.m., that's not bad. Of course, you don't do the math that you have to wake up at like 3.30 or 4 or something. So it was one of those kind of days. Um, but just after I'd gone to sleep, a call came in from close family friends of Aubrey's. Uh, that family friend, this is sort of... You know, the parents are friends, and all the kids had kind of grown up together. Uh, And in that family, their son was hit by a car. And so we waited for more info, wondering to hear how he was doing. Uh, And until we knew more, we we just there was nothing we could do. So we prayed, and then we went back to sleep. And I had that early flight to think about. I had a lot ahead. And, you know, normally you hear something devastating, but normally it works out, right? And so we, we went back to sleep thinking, you know, another call would come in. Maybe it would be bad, but he would be okay. Um, But then I remember the sound of the call coming, and I remember my father-in-law's voice. I could tell that it wasn't good. Uh, And I never forget, this is a strange detail, But I was sleeping, you know, as you do when you're not married yet. I was in like this kind of side guest room, Uh, and I remember there's a certain part of the hallway where the floorboards squeak just just so when someone walks over them. So I remember the sound of this call coming and thinking, "Oh, you know, how's it how's it going?" And then I heard these floorboards squeaking. I'm like, "Okay, so it's whatever it is. It's serious enough for him to come and and you know wake me up." And uh, the news was that it was bad and that this son was likely not going to live. Um, and so Rick, my father-in-law, and Aubrey and I drove at about 1 or 2 a.m. to the hospital, and we stayed there all night. We prayed. Uh, we simply comforted the, uh, the dad and the sister of this young man who was hit by the car. Uh, and I didn't know the young man very well, but his sister was almost like a a sister to Aubrey. He had spent some of the years of her growing up years living at at, at Aubrey's home. It's kind of a long story. Uh, So she was like family. She was in our wedding, so we knew at least her, I knew her very well, and they knew the family. And I never forgot sitting in that waiting room with the family. Uh, Again, like I said, I didn't know the young man well, but his sister was there, and I remember that she was struggling and thinking aloud and knowing that her brother might not make it through the night. Her brother at one time had been on fire for God, but a life of addiction and wandering had found him, and he'd strayed from the straight and narrow. And she worried and wondered aloud. She, she said, you know, if, if somebody who knows God and then wanders dies, what happens then, right? What happens to his soul? And so while keeping a pastoral and poker face, I kind of panicked inside because she was kind of, asking this question of Rick, my father-in-law, and myself, you know, if, if, if someone knows God and then wanders, what, what happens? Uh, and here I was, a missionary currently and a future pastor. Uh, I had just published my first article in a national magazine. I mean, I, I should have words, right? Words, like my whole life was words, but I had no words. Here she, she posed this question, and I, the one who, and many of you know this, I've always got words. <laughs> I had no words, uh, Many of you are like, yeah, no, I know that too well. Uh, I had no words, though, at that moment. But what I remember, and I'll never forget this, uh, at that very moment, my father in law, Rick, spoke up. Just not even a, a beat was missed. And he said, God never lets people go. God never lets people go. And I knew it in my bones at that moment. That was the right response. Even if intellectually, even if in terms of systematic theology, there's some debate around it, I kind of laughed later. Like, what if you're afflicted with a bit of like a cerebral mindset? Like, what are you going to say in that moment? Like, actually, there's a bit of a debate around that subject. Like, you cannot say something like that in that moment. Academics often uh, don't have the best bedside manner in their pastoral work, uh, and I'm aware of that. (laughs) Um, But I knew in that moment. Regarding that situation for that young man, in that context, I knew my father-in-law was right. Now, if you know him, if you've met Rick, uh, you know that comfort and consolation are are some of his spiritual gifts, and he has uh, used that gift well, and he has attended, on purpose, he's attended more funerals. You know, like, a lot of times you just go to the funerals of family and close loved ones, but he'll go to funerals of, like, distant connections, people he, he barely knows, as a way to minister And help. And uh, he's gone to more funerals, I think, in his lifetime than most people could in three or four lifetimes. But that's, I think, a recognition of his his gift. But this whole example brought me to this realization that there is a great difference between what is pastorally needed and what's pastorally true in a given situation in a certain context. There's a a difference between that and something that is a, a general, complex framework of ideas. And what I mean to say is The author of Hebrews is not saying, hey, what kind of questions will people 2,000 years from now ask of this book? And how can I heap together a whole heap of materials that they can go digging in to get their questions answered, right? The author is not really thinking about us. The author is thinking about the people that they are writing to. And so... Scripture is written specifically in a pastoral way, right? It's, it's Though you can make a systematic theology, you can say systematically this is what we can know about God because of this, that Scripture's first purpose, especially the epistles, the letters that are written to people, is that they have a kind of pastoral motivation for a people in need. Their purpose might be to comfort, or to encourage, or to console, or to give a kick in the pants. And what's hard for us, especially when we're trying to squeeze God into this box and answer our own questions, is that we only know half of the conversation. We only know the epistle writers' half. We don't actually know the situation on the ground as far as we just have to guess based on what we have In Scripture, what was going on. So remember this, that Scripture is written with a pastoral motivation in mind. And Scripture is fully true, even if it seems to contradict itself. The reasons are we do not know the actual situation of the people on the ground. And so remember, sometimes Scripture is written to encourage and console. Other times it is written to give people a kick in the backside saying, get on with it. And so uh, you can guess which of those two this author is giving. So with that, I'll do our reading for the day. It's uh, Hebrews 5.11 through uh, 6.12, I believe it is. The person who, you know, originally Scripture did not have chapters and verses, and so uh, a monk did a pretty good job of choosing where the chapters ought to go, but sometimes the monk missed the mark, and maybe it was toward the end of the day, and the monk had not had enough tea or whatever, and put the chapters right in the middle of an argument. Uh, So today, our argument actually starts uh, Hebrews 5.11, and then for whatever reason, chapter 6 starts a few verses later, but that's not the end of the passage. So we're kind of going against the chapter breakdown here. All right, so I'll start. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and then produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So we'll get to the sticky stuff in a bit, but I want to start where this passage starts. Uh, In the beginning, uh, the author is painting this kind of Benjamin Button scenario. Has anyone ever read the uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button short story? Has anyone ever read it? It's written by F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was born just about six, seven blocks north of here. Uh, Many have maybe seen the movie. Has anyone seen the Benjamin Button movie that came out about a decade ago? Right? Yeah, okay, so there are actually more than half of us. Man, I remember that was a devastating movie, but I thought it was well done. Um, all right, uh, so it's about—if in case you haven't seen it or read it—it's about a boy that is born essentially into a decrepit old man's body, and then he gets younger. He gets rather as he ages, he gets younger biologically, so so that he's actually headed toward his 40s and 30s, and then eventually adolescence, and he dies as a young, helpless baby. So he's sort of living in reverse. And the author is kind of painting a similar picture of this group, at least in their current state. Uh, he, the author is saying, you know, you've done these great things and been in this strong community. Uh, for a little background on this book, a lot of these Christians had been exiled from the Roman Empire, or at least from Rome. And so they've, they've undergone a lot of persecution. Some are beginning to maybe even be killed, though not this community. And this community seems to have offered a lot of help or to, been a, to have been a great blessing to these people going through. This suffering. So the author is saying, hey, you've done great work, you've been really mature and you've really helped out, uh, but now it's like you're losing your maturity. It's like you're aging backwards like Benjamin Button uh, and becoming like babies again, like a teenager going backward and then needing his mother's milk again. Uh, but solid food, the writer says, is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, just to be a Greek geek here, uh, the word for training is gymnasdo, or it's where, it's where you get gymnasdo or gymnasium from. So he's talking about training in the Christian life, much like the Greeks who went to the gymnasium every day would train. And now they didn't separate their scholastic and their physical endeavors. They would maybe study poetry and philosophy in one hour, and then they would go wrestle uh, in the, the Greek fashion for the next hour. And then they'd go lift weights, and then they'd go back to rhetoric, right? So the sort of the training was both intellectual and, and physical, And he's encouraging them to train themselves for the Christian walk. In this same way, uh, I don't know why, but I've kind of been. Actually, I do know why. I've been going through a bit of like a chess uh, obsession. I think uh, I've, I've never been great at it. I've never played a lot of it. But my my son learned from Josiah and Katie's son, and so I was helping to f- help him like finish the rules. And for whatever reason, I just caught a certain addiction. I don't know what it was. There was a certain fascination with it. And so I recently read or listened to a biography of Bobby Fischer, who's the greatest American chess player who's ever lived. Uh, there have been other who have been on top for longer than him, but at his peak, people say he may have been the the best human chess player that's ever lived. Of course, computers can beat anyone now. Uh, But he would study, on average, four or five hours per day of like the tactics and the stuff involved in chess, and that was just normal life, four or five hours a day, starting at age seven or eight, and when he was preparing for a serious match, he'd start studying 12 to 16 hours a day specifically. He'd look over every single game that player had ever played and study every move, and why the player did it. And I just thought, man, you want to think about training for the Christian life. You want to think about the gymnasium. Look, I mean, even our, our chess players are putting us to shame, right, And in, in how deeply they study a board game, right, <laughs> compared to, oh, man, compared to the Christian walk. Uh, imagine if we did that in our faith. What if we took our faith that seriously with prayer, with study, with reading, with serving the poor? What if our devotion looked like that? This is just, I want to mention this as a little side point. There's been a great movement in the last 30 or 40 years to dumb down the life of the church. Uh, Largely, this ground has kind of been walked over, and people have been been talking about this, that youth group kids of the 90s and early 2000s have grown up with pool tables and traffic lights, right? And then they, they grow up, and they want more Of the same. They want the excitement, the sort of entertainment-focused Christian development, rather than having to maybe do some work like they do at school or in any other place. And so now we have a lot of churches that are made in those youth groups image, right? Like, what do you get when you have pool tables and traffic lights but kind of grown up into adult church? You kind of get get more of the same, essentially the smoke and lights, uh, entertainment-focused, movement-focused churches uh, that the church needs to sort of entertain or move you emotionally first rather than um, be the church. So, for those of you with children, whether young or old, I wanted—I uh, wanted to mention this as an aside in this sermon. I wanted you to keep this in mind: that kids are actually at a higher learning level today in this country uh, than ever before. And so, even so, for, so for a humanities person or a liberal arts person like me, it can be easy to decry—we're like, not as good of readers as we used to be a hundred years ago. We're not reading the classics. People don't know Latin and rhetoric, and that's true. But overall, uh, people's IQ on average over the last 100 years it's about 10 to 15 points higher than it was just 100 years ago. That's largely through all of the access that kids have to abstractions, right? Being able to tie abstract ideas to real physical concepts is a huge benefit to human thinking. So you can look this up. Our IQ has gone up significantly in the last 100 years. So we are smarter, we know sci- scientific, biological, uh, physics concepts that would make our ancestors balk. And you, like, you could have a 16-year-old explain to you how flight works, you know, I mean, we, we know more more than we've ever known. Kids are learning calculus and trigonometry. They're reading Shakespeare. They're truly understanding things that our ancestors would just keel over at. Uh, Yet, we have this idea that when they show up at church, we need to give them this sort of sugar-laced milk, right? this sort of simple stuff. And here they are at school learning calculus, and we're like, well, how can we make it as cheap and sugary and entertaining as possible when they come to church, rather than actually requiring something, asking a challenge of our kids you know what 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 kind of challenges can we give them uh, whether now or as they age what about giving one-tenth of their high school job wages back to a charity of some kind right what about serving the poor what about spending five and then 10 and then 20 minutes a day in prayer what about memorizing the book of Philippians or first John or James you know what about reading this difficult book by name your favorite Christian writer What they need is vegetables and healthy meats and fats, not starbursts, right? (laughs) And at the mention of starbursts, all of your insulin responses is like, oh, I'm ready for it. All right, um, so that's just a brief aside. The author reminds them, Therefore, let us not move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. There's a whole interesting section here. We don't have time to go through it, but it's really interesting to look at the very, what did, what did the early Jewish Christians consider the basics of the faith? And a lot of them were like, oh yeah, that would be right there. Repentance and faith, that would certainly be at the basis you know, of, of the fundamentals of the faith. But then instructions about cleansing rites, uh, you know, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, this isn't about Jesus resurrecting, this is about how we will as well, resurrect. Uh, interesting, eternal judgment. It's just interesting seeing their um, fundamentals. But we, we uh, let me skip that so we don't go too far over in our time here. Uh, the author then goes into a warning. Uh, they, they warn against stagnation and against falling off. Now, one modern author, com- uh, one commentator compares this to riding a bicycle Uh, Balancing on a bicycle gets easier the faster you go, right? Have you guys ever been going... Have you ever tried to balance on a bicycle going, like, one mile per hour? And for those who are able to balance a bicycle not moving at all, that's a serious skill. Can anyone here balance a bicycle while not moving forward or backward at all? Anybody? I cannot, right? But everybody here, presumably, can ride a bike at, say, five or ten miles per hour. So it gets easier to balance the faster you're moving forward. And it's the same... With Christian life that if you stagnate for long, if you completely stop moving forward, it becomes almost impossible to stand and remain your balance. And you fall and you scuff yourself up. So the author is saying, do not fall off. Do not stagnate. Do not slow down and just sit back on your haunches and put your feet up. And that's where I mean, this, is fairly, this is fairly normal. This is not hard for me to say any of this. But this is where it gets really tricky. And I would argue the reason a lot of Protestant pastors do not go through the book of Hebrews because they don't want to wrestle with this text that we're going to jump into. So six, Hebrews 6, verse 4 and on. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Wow. Do you guys, you guys remember having read this text? A lot of people don't even remember that it's in there because nobody reads Hebrews. They're like, well, I'll read you know Matthew through Romans and then I'll go back and start it over again, right? <laughs> That's where we think the New Testament stops a lot of times. Um, this is huge. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Is it, though? What does that mean? So to be enlightened here, some people just shrug this off and say, oh, well, you know, if someone claims to be a believer but then falls away, well, they were never really a believer in the first place. Um, And this is a cop-out. This is to sweep the issue under the rug to just keep going on with our previous beliefs and not deal with the nuance and the difficulty of Scripture. It's to suffocate Scripture and not let it breathe, right? But we want to give Scripture its space. We want to let the Word of God breathe and not force it into our convenient system. So to be enlightened is the early Christian term for to become a believer. It's sort of what a lot of people say today or in the South when they say someone got saved when they were 18 or whatever. To get saved is the same meaning, It's to become Enlightened. Uh, it says that they're in the family. They're full partakers. Uh, they have tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. So they've even seen miracles enacted in their community. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say they've witnessed or they've just sort of been around and seen the work of the Holy Spirit. It says they've shared in the Holy Spirit. So these are not just fakers. If we're going to give the Bible its due, these are not just people who seem to have converted. They're not just fakers, they're real believers. They have fought the good fight for some time, and it calls them full partakers in the truth. But then it says it is impossible for these people to be brought back to repentance. So what does this mean? Does this mean that if you become a Christian and then go on sinning, that you're out? Uh, Funny enough, even though Scripture directly answers this question, the early church thought this, and they were afraid. And so if you read much of church history, you'll see that a lot of the early church leaders, even some of the big giants of early Christian theology, were terrified of getting baptized because they thought that if they sinned after they were baptized that they were like out then and they were sort of in, in, you know, outside of grace. Uh, but 1 John speaks directly to this. Uh, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so this is, I mean, this is clearly answered, and I'm not really sure how they got so uh, waylaid by this. But we have an advocate. He knows, even after baptism, he knows after we confess our faith that we will go on sinning. What this is talking about is if you willfully, willfully turn your back on God and walk away and publicly shame, publicly reject him that it seems if we give space to this text maybe I'm wrong, maybe bit, I almost hope I'm wrong, but it seems that there is an opening or an allowance for apostasy um, it seems that God is allowing people to put their hand up and say "If you know, I want nothing of you for eternity that, that God would allow that, so C.S. Lewis talks about this, he says that God is enough of a gentleman that if somebody wants to go into God's house but then eventually at some point puts their hand up and says, actually, I want nothing to do with you for the rest of eternity, that God is enough of a gentleman to say, okay, and give them their way. So this is not talking about people who are um, fading or who are lost in sin or who are even slaves to sin after coming to know God. It's talking about those who put their hand up and say, I want nothing to do with you, God, and publicly shame him and walk away. The author goes on to say, this is a little tricky, but it says, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it has been farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So the land here is talking about the believer. God's blessing is poured out on the Christian, and then the, the Christian produces crops or fruit. But if this land—well, here, let me cut myself off. Notice, it's not what we do first. It's not saying, hey, land that produces fruit then gets God's blessing. It's saying all the land gets God's blessing. God's rains come down on the land either way. But if then that land produces only thorns and thistles, it is in danger of being cursed. Now, does this remind you of any passage, say, in the beginning of the Bible? God gives abundance, but sometimes we choose idolatry. Sometimes we choose to hide our faces from God. We choose sin, and we choose to follow the evil one instead. And what follows is thorns and toil. God showers his blessing and grace upon us. The gift is free, but if you drop that gift in a dumpster, if you dismantle it and drag it behind a car, the gift giver will respond in a similar way to a farmer with a field that only produces thistles. The grace is free. It's freely given. It's undeserved. We didn't do anything to deserve it, but our response matters, right? So the grace is free. We didn't earn it or work for it, but our response to that gift, that's what the word grace in Greek means. It's just a gift that our response to the gift matters. It has consequence. And this is why this is so tricky, because it seems to show that one, just on a plain reading, it seems to show that one can truly be in the community of God, but then also be lost. Uh, Trumper Longman is a scholar that uh, helped me out. He, He talks about how the rest of the New Testament seems to say the opposite. So if you read through, you kind of get, it seems like you get both sides of this. So Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So someone who is really all in on the once-saved-always-saved eternal security camp, they will be citing this verse. Uh, Paul says something similar in Romans 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So are we predestined to be transformed into his image and nobody can snatch us away? Or are people, is there a freedom, is there a kind of openness to apostatize? Uh, and this is, again, why a lot of people kind of skip over this chapter, because it's very it's very difficult. Um, but I want to give this text space to breathe and move through it. Uh, and what I've come to, what I've understood from this, is that no matter how deep into sin you are, that no matter how deep or how far you stray, God still has you, but there is a sin deep enough that causes people to apostatize. Uh, There is such a thing as blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which we often don't talk about, but in the Gospels it talks about that all sins are forgiven and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So there is something, it seems, that we can do to forever turn our back on God, and that's where that gentleman idea comes in, that God will not force us into his house. He is a gentleman. And that makes some uncomfortable, but I do think it's right. I think it's the only way to reconcile this, what true and ultimate security means, that nobody can snatch us away, that we are God's sheep, but he also made us free, and he also made us able or free enough to choose apostasy, uh, if we should choose that. Now, I could be wrong. I almost hope I'm wrong. You certainly don't have to agree with me, uh, but I'm trying to give this text justice in its, in its context here. It seems the most appropriate way to give Hebrews space without forcing Hebrews under uh, Paul and John. But I think it's all true if you remember that this is pastorally written. So it's not some all-encompassing system. It's not, they're not trying to give systematic theology. They're not trying to create a box that we squeeze God into. God both saves us once and for always, and no one can snatch us away, but he also has made us free. He's given us this freedom, this spark, that we are able to choose against God if we want. We are able to apostate ourselves. Uh, One commentator helped here. um, talks about how Paul and John, remember this is not systematic theology, Paul and John are writing to real people with a real struggle. And those people were people who needed to be encouraged, people who needed confidence. So like with my father-in-law that day, as we were waiting in that hospital waiting room, Paul and John are writing to people who are suffering. No, God will never let you go. God will not let anyone snatch you away. But the author of Hebrews is not writing to these timid people who need to be encouraged. The author of Hebrews is writing to those who are drifting, who aren't keeping their commitment to their original and first love of following Jesus. Uh, The author is writing to those who are kind of getting lazy and sitting back and just letting letting their Christian walk pass them by and not doing the work that they were doing at first. So both Paul and John and the author of Hebrews are right. They're both true, but they're speaking to different audiences with different needs, uh, different emotional things that they need to hear to encourage them in the Christian walk. No matter how far you drift, no one can snatch you from him. But praise God, the author goes on, this is not the scenario for you Hebrews, the author says. This is not your scenario. This is just sort of a worst case scenario that the author was drawing out. The author goes on to say, yeah, I'm convinced you're not there. Uh, the author offers this warning as a preemptive, you know, don't, don't stay on this track. Your bicycle is slowing down and it's going to be almost impossible to stand. So start pedaling again, essentially, it says this. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So they are, not, uh, they are not the ground that produces thorns. Even though they're becoming less fruitful, they're not yet this ground that produces thistles. They have helped God's people and done many great acts, and the fact that they have real faith is clear, but just stick to it and don't lose your walk. So I think my father-in-law was definitely right uh, that, that early morning in that hospital. God never lets his people go, and in that young man's case, that was certainly the true and right response he had wandered, he had strayed, he had been uh, taken captive to certain addictions and sins. But God does not let his people go. No matter how far that one sheep strays, God has made it clear that Jesus, the good shepherd, will go after them. But God is also a gentleman. He has also made us free. And if a person hardened by years of straying finally says that last thing, and says, look, God, I want nothing to do with you for eternity. I want a, a separation from you then I can't be sure, but it seems like in this passage that Scripture seems to show that we are free to say that and that God is a gentleman to recognize that request. But that takes time. That's a trajectory. And I've talked, as we've been going through Hebrews, I talk about this, that as you watch your friends in this great period of desiccation, uh, a lot of people are, are walking away from faith in the West. And that's not necessarily just anything the church has done. It's like, that has been a 300 year progression of people walking away from faith as we become more and more secular and this sort of the enchantment of the universe uh, fades. This has been a trajectory, right? That, um, Faith has been thinning out, and what happens is first people say, well, I'm going to take a little break from meeting together with my fellow Christian believers. I'm going to take a little break from from Bible study. I'm going to just sort of be gone for a little while. And for a few months, they seem just fine, right? You you might get coffee with them three or six months later, and you think, oh, you know, they haven't been in church, or they haven't been having any kind of Christian community. They haven't been spending time in the Word, but they still seem like them. And you think, oh, maybe it's okay. Maybe it's all right that they're taking a break, right? Because the church isn't perfect, and, and it probably hurt them or whatever, And then you get coffee with them six or 12 months later, and they're like, yeah, I actually don't think I'm ever going to come back to church, and I'm not sure that I believe in a Christian message anymore. You know, Jesus is good, but I'm not sure what I think about everything. And you think, okay, well... That's certainly not as encouraging as what I heard six or 12 months ago, but maybe you know there's some hope here. Let's just keep praying for him and, and meeting with him. And then you get coffee with him a year later, and they're like, oh yeah, I'm definitely not coming back to church. And I think the whole thing is just made up, and Jesus is a farce, and the church is actually one of the main problems in society. And you're like, what happened? And it's a, it's a progression. It's a trajectory that the author gets at here. That First, you get thinned out and separated from the herd. This is exactly how predators work. If you watch the Discovery Channel ever as a kid, or even now, you know, it's, it, if you're in the herd, you stay moving forward and you stay safe. But as one kind of becomes weak or, or separates, that's the one that gets targeted. And at first, as, at first, when the animal is separating from the herd, it's probably fine. If any lions or anything come after it, the herd is right there. You know, it can quick run and hide under its, you know, mom or whatever. Um, but as it strays further and further, it becomes easier pickings. And the same is true... In the faith. And that's why the author is saying, don't give up, later in chapter 10, I think, the author says, don't give up meeting together, as is the habit of some. Don't give up going to church or your Bible study, prayer with believers. Don't give up serving the poor or helping or belonging to the communities you belong to, because as you separate, it seems safe at first. You're still right there, you're so close to the herd. But as you slow down and separate, then you become easy pickings. Uh, another metaphor the author uses that we've talked about is as you, 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 when you're swimming against the current in a river, you're actually you're keeping up, right? You're not being carried downstream. And finally, when you give up that swim, when you stop swimming, it's so rewarding, right? Your muscles are like, thank you for not swimming against the current anymore. And as that current gets faster, it becomes harder to swim against it. And so when you first stop swimming, you, you receive such an award, for, or or rather a reward for not swimming against it. And as you start to tread water, you're basically in the same spot. You know, a few days later, a few weeks later, you haven't moved that far. But if you don't start swimming again against that current, soon enough you're in an entirely different continent just six months later. And that's what happens as people pull out from the Christian walk. So I want to encourage you guys uh, in light of this passage to pray for your friends and relatives who are in this boat. And we all know people here, Uh, we all know so many. I think I I did a show of hands when we started this series. I said, how many of you know someone who's converted to belief in Christ as an adult? And I think there's like one hand, or in the last five years, and I think there was like one hand that went up. And then I said, how many of you know people who have converted away from Christ as adults in the last five years? And almost every hand in the church went up. So we are in this sort of drying out and desiccating time uh, for faith. But I want to encourage you to pray for your friends and relatives in this boat. Encourage them, call them back to a life of faithful service in Christ. Not a life of milk, but solid food, of serving God, of using your full faculty, of actually training your mind and your body to follow God, becoming truly mature. Uh, you know, there's so many things that mark a true and mature believer, like praying for your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, repenting daily of sin, giving what you have to the poor sharing Jesus' good news with others, becoming more like Jesus and being sanctified every day, being conformed to his image. That's what fruit is. So don't become lazy. Don't fall back. Don't stop moving forward on the bicycle or it will become harder and harder to balance, and eventually you will fall. You will scuff your, your elbow don't separate from the herd, because if you do, then this, this kind of hardening will come, and you might completely walk away, as I have seen half a dozen or a dozen close Christian friends do over the years, and it's always that same trajectory, the slow, slow wander from the herd, and eventually just a complete otherness a few years later. So stay strong, keep progressing, don't go back to milk, eat solid food, challenge yourself, stay on the bike, and don't walk away, and keep responding to God's grace. Thank you guys for sticking with me through a very difficult message. Please don't uh, dislike me if you're like, no, man, I'm set. I think you're wrong. That's great. We, we have people who differ in opinion here, and I'm really glad about it. So I'm glad that we have some people who are all about eternal security and other people who, who aren't. And that that makes us stronger as a church. So uh, let's pray, and then I invite you guys downstairs uh, for refreshment. Lord, thank you so much for this text and the way that it makes us wrestle and uh, not try to squeeze you into a box, but give your scripture room to breathe. We pray that we keep wrestling with it, that we would not forget it, that we would not subsume it to other texts, but, but really question you and, and pray about what this means. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you do uh, go after your straying sheep and that you don't let people go. And we ask for wisdom and that we'd understand what it means, that, that it seems that maybe you do leave the freedom uh, for people to say no to you. Um, We pray that you would bring people into your church, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on St. Paul and on the world. And we pray again for comfort for those uh, who are suffering in Ukraine. Uh, We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at CapitalCitySt.Paul.com.